rules and standards for music town employee conduct. Music town? We're not a music town. No, we're not a music town. Yes. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. It's over, kids, okay? Mitchell is the man, Joe. Yeah, and man calls all the shots. Damn the man. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Empire Records. Starring Liv Tyler. I mean, you know you're not on until this afternoon, right? <laughs> Joe, it's Rex Manning Day. Robert Tunney. What is going on? I decided I'd rather kill myself than you, Rex Manning. Now, excuse me, I'm going. Renee Zellweger. I want to sing in a band, but, um, I don't have the guts to even audition. Rory Cochran. In the immortal words of the doors, the time to hesitate is through. Anthony LaPaglia. What do you want me to do? Call Mitchell? Tell him I lied? It seems like a viable option. And Maxwell Coldfield. Oh, God. Look what? at this place. Come on, Rex. There's no gig too small, all right? Middle America buys your records. Now, come on, we got a lot of fans waiting in there. Directed by Alan Moyle. Now, Mark, you got to understand something here. This music is the glue of the world, Mark. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Say no more, money more. Say no more, money more, say no more, money more. It's Gally in Glasgow. I can categorically say that you are not a bigger banana head. It's Devlin in London. You forgot your thingy. It's Patrick back in London. Shock me, shock me, shock me with that deviant behaviour. It's Matt in South Korea. Welcome back, gang, and welcome back, listeners. We are back on track. We're back on schedule. I hope everyone had a lovely Halloween. Guys, did we have a, a lovely Halloween? Uh, this year, no, no movie marathons, no, uh, no tremendously violent splatter films. Uh, I was in a lovely cottage on the Isle of Wight with my two adorable nieces and the only pumpkins I carved were, uh, had little cat faces on them. So it was, uh, whole, it was wholesome, literally wholesome all the way i was uh slashed out so i abandoned it uh so my actual halloween day was horrorless for once i watched the village and prisoners and just chilled in the house like that was my picks for the day for the evening i've got to say so this is the first year uh in my new uh house so it's the first time i've ever done trick or treat with the with the kids and uh so I bought absolutely shit ton of sweets. And unfortunately, I only got about six uh, because the weather in Glasgow on Halloween night was was atrocious. So I've just been eating uh, cola mowams for the last seven or eight days. So, yeah, <laughs> next year I'll buy less. But it was, a, it was a good Halloween. Right. So we are back on schedule, team. Devlin, your pick from about a year ago. I don't know. When did you pick Empire Records for a throwback? Genuinely could not tell you how long ago this was. It feels like, it feels like it's been six months in the making, potentially. Yeah. Well, either way, we've got to find a right time. And now does feel like the right time as we come out of the spooky season and we start entering a slightly more joyful and hopeful season. Um, so Devlin, I will ask you first, what is your experiences with Empire Records? Uh, Empire Records was a video that I bought from Solid Sounds in Darlington, which was later renamed Music hey. Zone. 
Uh, is that where you I worked? Went, or... It was, yes. So I would have been about 14 and I was just getting all kind of alt rock and, uh, uh, and just getting to the point where I was dyeing my hair a lot and wearing really questionable, uh, <laughs> spiked jewelry accessories. And, uh, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> a big thick collar. Yeah. Oh, no, the collar, the big, like, like leather, leather cuffs. So I bought this, this video. I guess I must have heard about it somewhere or maybe I just saw the cover and, and that was enough for me. Uh, and, uh, the idea of working in like a big record store with loads of cool kids having very little work responsibilities and learning life lessons and starting a mosh pit to suicidal tendencies. It just sounded like an amazing thing to do. And I did end up working at Music Zone for a year later when I was 19. And, uh, I have a lot of very fond memories of working in Music Zone thanks to my very cool manager, Ron. But, uh, my life was not changed unalterably by the experience unfortunately it was just quite nice and i bought a lot of discount cds but, um it's uh it's a film that i've stuck with for for quite a long time it's been a real comfort watch like um it's uh it's it's a film i go back to quite a lot and it was uh, a a constant rewatch but never really a communal thing it's not something where i've had like a little uh um underground cabal of people that i quote this film to because you guys are like the people I talk to most and uh, you guys are not that familiar with it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Devlin, I'm going to put my hand up. I thought I'd seen Empire Records, but I haven't. So this was actually a first time watch for me, um, which wow. was surprising. I guess name recognition. I know the cover. I know all the, the major players, Liv Tyler, Rennie Zellweger in the movie, Robin Tunney as well. Big fan of her. End of days. New York. Christ in New York. Um Deep cut there reference if anyone's not seen End of Days. Sorry. Um, so yeah, no I, End of Days. I thought <laughs> exactly that won't make it into the Arnie season. I don't think. <laughs> no, will it not? That's a shame. He, he literally kills a priest. How can you not enjoy it? Anyway, um, so yeah, I I thought I'd seen this movie, and then as I was watching it, I was like, I think I know why I thought I'd seen this movie, and the comparisons with other types or other films of this type. Um, they are quite apparent, but it, it has got its own personality. So, um, I will save, I will save my sandwiches. Um, but I'm really looking forward to getting into it with you guys, especially you, Devlin, obviously, because you hold this one so dear. Um, what about you, Patrick? I've never heard of it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, I know I'm kind of embarrassed to say that. I, I had, I didn't recognize the poster. I didn't recognize the title and I'd never seen it. And yeah. Watch it twice, ready for today. Had you seen it before, Matt? Uh, I was aware of, uh, well, I thought, um, that Joey Lauren Adams was in it. You know, the chasing Amy lesbian and Mulrats flasher. Uh, I thought she was in it, but it, it turns out it's Rennie Zellweger. Um, I didn't really know too much about it. Um, I knew Liv Tyler was in it, uh, because her and uh, Alicia Silverstone were responsible for, uh, awakening something <laughs> in those in those early uh, aerosmith years although disturbingly through the research here they're they're pretty young when they were in them so uh, as lovely as Liv is in this movie i'm probably have to be a bit careful <laughs> but uh I'd, I'd never seen it until earlier this year like um so it was a bit of a coincidence i was putting together some double bills and this one made a really nice pairing with that thing you do all oh, right it had e- ethan yeah, embry nice. 
and uh, Liv Tyler were in both. And they're kind of both about music and made at similar times. Uh, it made a nice pairing. Um, it also plays well with High Fidelity, I, I found like as a record shop mm. double bill. And yeah. a lot of people I talked to got were, were getting them mixed up. They thought High Fidelity was empire records and empire records was high fidelity i've heard of that film i I didn't mix them up but just coincidentally i saw it earlier this year so seeing it for the first time in my late 30s was an unusual way to (laughs) to see it but um yeah it was a a strange kind of introduction to it but i'm 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 glad that we get a chance to talk about it devlin you picked this uh on the back end of donnie darko uh yeah i think it was i think it was just a little coincidental i i um I wanted something that, uh, that I'd always been super into. Like, you know, I wanted to get back to, to reviewing films that were, uh, informative because I guess that's kind of the MO to an extent. Um, also, uh, I was hoping to finally pick something that maybe people had heard of and liked because there is a cult <laughs> around this film. Yeah. Uh, on, on a, a, a Friday night, maybe once a month, uh, during lockdown, uh, there's been a, uh, an online, movie music video disco that i've been watching when i first moved to london there was this fucking amazing club night called uh, uh real music it was held in a bowling alley in uh bloomsbury and uh people would get dressed up as film characters and they would go and the guy who runs it he's a film director and um <clears throat> he picks uh tracks from from movie soundtracks and then he edits these custom videos to go with them and this this will run like all night till three four in the morning and uh, he's been resurrecting it online and uh, it's been a real kind of lifesaver because obviously it's so boring on a weekend night and this thing would go on really late and you'd just get to sit and watch. And uh, obviously he and the other people that run it are big Empire Records fans. So uh, the Sugar High sequence would come up every week and a couple of other tracks on the soundtrack. And I just thought, yeah, why not finally pick something a bit kind of optimistic and positive and nice? Mm. So... When was the uh, Elliot Smith era? Because that's when I first met you during the Elliot Smith kind of, you, you, you kind of looked a bit like him. Just coming into your all the real girls phase the, then, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I, that's I, I didn't really that know the, the, the Empire Records dev. So did, did uh, he have any more nice. spike jewelry? Um. I think you had a choker. Did you not have a choker <laughs> and, and black hair? Please think, tell me you had a leash on that choker. <laughs> it wasn't quite a choker, like but it was like, on a, uh, like a little neck, <laughs> a necklace of some. Description. It was like a little necklace made of like a uh, like metal ball bearings, and no, that was all right. That was okay. It was just slightly gothic, just not not uh, not full Robert Smith or anything. Just a suggestion. A, a very small tangent that I would imagine you'll let it out because uh, it's irrelevant. But um, when I was uh, fifteen, fifteen or sixteen. Um, I was briefly arrested and taken to our jail and it was right in the middle of this, um, right in the middle of this period of my life. So, uh, I was wearing the most enormous outfit, literally every item of clothing I was wearing was too big. And I, I, I had the full, like, you know, the, the, the baggy skater jeans that were right round the ass, like the bottom end of the ass. <laughs> Barely, barely held together with a belt. And then if you know this bit, if you end up going to our jail, they take your belt and shoes off you. So, <laughs> I had to hold these jeans out <laughs> while being very embarrassingly arrested for um, stealing a wing mirror off a car while drunk. Patrick, it's, it's story time. Can you please give us 
and the listeners a plot synopsis for Empire Records. The staff of Empire Records have the coolest jobs on earth. But Lucas blew it. Everyone knew it. Now five friends have one day to decide what to do with the rest of their lives. AJ loves Corey, not the whole story. Corey wants Rex, first time at sex. Mark's raging mad, best day he's had. Deb shaved her head and made out she was dead. Gina did it again, this time to a friend. Want to know more? Check out the store. Turtleneck clad young hipster Lucas shoulders responsibility for locking up the vast independent record store at which he works. He discovers that there's a plan for a corporate takeover from Music Town. Taking the day's revenue of $9,104 to Atlantic City, Lucas loses the money in a failed attempt at striking a blow to all that is evil and making the world a better place to live in, preserving good times they share at Empire Records. Classic 90s floppy fringed AJ and goofy burnout Mark discover Lucas in the aftermath, who scoots off before the boss, Joe, arrives. Preppy good girl Corey and feisty promiscuous Gina arrive to help open the shop, apparently dusting the place, before Lucas returns and faces Joe. Throughout the day, they need to understand themselves better amidst unrequited love and sublimated conflicts. They need to find the money to save themselves and Empire Records. Let's hope Rex Manning Day doesn't distract them too much as they damn the man to save the Empire. Empire Records, open till midnight. Very powerful, Patrick. Very, very good. I mean, you, you, you told me everything, and yet you told me nothing, which is kind <laughs> of... Kind, it's kind of the film. Um, I, I guess before we get into the, the nooks and crannies of, uh, of the many, many uh, sort of interwoven stories uh, in this day in a life of... Yeah, there's a lot that happens, so without a big plot really absolutely but i guess before we get into that one of the things that you wrote was is this a a corporate attempt at tapping into the youth market or is this a genuine labor of love that that was honestly that was what i wanted to kind of get out with you last because i i think i'm going to be blinded to this film to to some extent obviously i've attached so much of my uh uh um so much kind of uh, uh, good feeling towards it from having seen it for so many years. And I, I came to the film at a time when I was obviously a lot more guileless and less cynical. And I think that perhaps that's something that I want to ask you guys um, as we go through as to whether uh, um, the film's relative failure was possibly because of this, because people had maybe uh, um, assumed quite cynically that it is pure product, but um if I could give you a little background, just a very, very brief background on the production history of it, it might help to kind of uh, uh, hopefully not sway you one way or the other, but maybe inform what the film is like. So um, it's written by a very young writer, uh, Carol Heikinen. Um, from what I could see, uh, uh, not a huge amount of credits elsewhere. Uh, this was her debut feature. Uh, she wrote it in her 20s and she'd worked at a Tower Records in Phoenix and then later in LA when she moved to LA. Um, modeling the structure of it on, uh, on the film Car Wash. She said that she wanted yeah. like, uh, wacky shenanigans happening over one day. At one point, the film was supposed to take place over two days. I'm glad they condensed it. I think a film like this, that sort of, uh, that kind of, even, like you said, with not very much going on, it's nice to have that sort of condensed timeline ticking clock that, you know, uh, um, 
So there was a, an absolute random Hollywood chance that it even got produced in the first place. She was shopping the, the script around for a while and it ended up at uh, some exec at Regency Pictures um, who happened to have gone to the same high school as her just several years before. So mm. it was, it was, uh, um, I don't think that she was like in, I don't think she got, you know, uh, I think it was just a case of dumb luck really, but the script passed and, and, um, uh, it ended up with, um, uh, Arnon Milchin's company. So this is how it ended up at Regency. Arnon Milchin is a home to previous rewind titles, Under Siege 2, Colin Dark Territory, <laughs> Memoirs of an Invisible Man, LA Confidential, and to be fair, a really interesting and very strange selection of stuff. Also, Arnon Milchin is a fascinating weirdo arms dealer, spy, like an actual spy. Um, so one of these days we should look into his shady, shady past, but, um, <laughs> uh, the, the, the film was picked up and, um, the head of Regency Pictures was offered Amy Heckling's clueless three days after he had signed on to take on Empire Ooh. Records and he rejected it saying that he already had his teen picture set for the season. And the relative box office takes of those two films will tell you whether or not he made the right How much did this one take, Dev? Uh, I, you know what? I don't have the box office for this. I do know that it is. It, it I wasn't think I saw it's though, like wasn't it? 200 and something thousand it yeah. took. It took nothing. It's really, really Did it do okay VHS and DVD sales or It, it like took that? off. It was, uh, it was TV that, that really got it. They started playing it on, um, on rotation on like Comedy Central and stuff in the States. And that's where they, they garnered this, you know, a lot of films kind of picked up like this. But for a film like this, where there's, there's no, um, there's no franchise to launch from it. There's no sequeling to be done, but probably it helped out the actors. Cause, uh, as you've seen, like the, uh, most people in the cast went on to huge success. Yeah. So, I think uh, Renee and Liv did all right, didn't they? And the uh, soundtrack did very well. Uh, I, I heard that, uh, it had something to do with the bodyguard being incredibly successful and the soundtrack making more than the movie. Uh, so they kind of made the movie in reverse. They sort of had the songs ready that were owned by the same company that they knew they could get. And then they kind of made a film around this idea of selling a soundtrack. It's a bit too, like so Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Ah. Interesting. That, that soundtrack made more money. It was, no, it's that kind of, builds that the the they sold the film distribution based on the soundtrack mm. and we were look at look at the era as well so we're what three years removed from reservoir dogs so quinton's been yeah. on the scene talking about how music is so important and we're already tapping into this idea that soundtracks are now becoming mm-hmm. as you say as popular mm-hmm. as the films if not the launching <clears throat> pad to keep a film relevant for longer right i mean one of the things that i found interesting yeah. with this one Devlin, is that Look at the era. Same year, more rats. No one went to see more rats in the cinema either. But now if you asked like people of a certain age who are big Kevin Smith stands, you know, more rats is like, well, more rats is you know, fantastic. Brilliant comedy. Not my words, theirs. And um, we're joined by David Brent here. One of the things that I did think though, Devlin, is had, had this type of youth picture. I know that Clueless came out the same year, but Clueless feels like a film? Does that mean, mm. I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. sound harsh here, but like this feels D 
deeply uncinematic. The term that got phrased by Quentin Tarantino, this isn't a Quentin Tarantino show, by the way, was a hangout movie. This feels like a hangout movie. Yeah, I, I guess I wondered, even by the time we got to university, whether maybe it would be a case that I, di- I didn't know how this would play. Possibly university era is the worst time to pick up a film like this because, like you say, this this balance of like cynicism and guilelessness, which it has is uh is a very it's a very delicate balance and i think you probably if you were to come to it at a time when you when you're like your defenses are up and you're feeling kind of you know very cynical and jaded and gen xy uh possibly that's why this film didn't do well i think it plays to a younger audience or to a more forgiving older audience i think if you're trying to hit like 17 18 19 20 year olds I think they're going to be picking this one apart because um it's like, of course, the business part of it is cynical. The business part of the entire movie industry is cynical. The idea of putting together a teen movie to try and sell on, you know, the appeal of these young stars in the making and this soundtrack that, as you pointed out, is probably all bands who are signed to the corporate record label that's affiliated to the, uh, um, to the movie studio. There's, there's a reason why that Gin Blossoms track comes on four times in the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. But also what I wanted to, to say about the music is that there are times when it's like bizarre choices. So um, uh, not to jump too far ahead, but the moment where Gina comes out in her music town apron and does a little sexy dance around and you would think that they would be putting on like some sort of teen pop hit. It's fucking Quicksand, who are this really influential, strange uh, uh, New York post-hardcore band. So, uh, that right. made very little sense, but it's great that they uh, mm. quicksand are on a corporate record label soundtrack, but brilliant. You mentioned corporate America before and, and like that idea that I, I sort of started thinking about Kurt Cobain and then found out through the research that they uh, set it on the day that his body was discovered. Oh, uh, that's Rex Manning Day. It's connected to Kurt Cobain. Oh, wow. And uh, I always remember him on the cover of... Uh, rolling stone where he's wearing the the shirt that says corporate magazines still suck it's like a, a very famous athena kind of thing that you'll you'll see um and there was this kind of vague idea that everyone was selling out around that time i remember i was into green day and uh people had sort of painted them as punks and then when dookie and insomniac sold a lot they they said oh they're they're sellouts and the the worst thing you could do as a band, as an artist at that point, was be labeled a, a sellout. And there's a weird connection there because Billy Joe Armstrong, the singer from Green Day, was originally in line to play the Coyote he was, uh, Shivers. Yeah, he was uh, going to be Burko. And oh. it was only because Green Day took off so much that, uh, that, that he was unavailable. It's a good point because it really, it killed a lot of bands' careers, Ed, because after the success of Nirvana, basically they swept up bands like Quicksand, who really had no right to be on like Atlantic Records or whatever. They uh, they were like proper DIY ethos guys, and they all got swept up. And it finished a lot of bands off. You get like um, guys like Jawbreaker, who had a, a phenomenally successful underground career. They did their major. You look at most of these great like '90s alt rock bands, and you read their Wikipedia page. It's like three or four really great albums on an indie. They get signed in about 94 through 96. The album fucking tanks. And because they've been signed to these restrictive contracts and also, like you say, their reputation was shot in the the scene kids who propped them up were like, well, I don't need this anymore. I'm not buying I'm not buying this at 
Tower Records or whatever, you know. So, um, you know, they weren't big enough for the mainstream. They weren't small enough for the indie scene. And possibly that's how this film ended up falling right between those two stools. Because it's also, I mean, we say it's like a corporate product, but it's also, it's Regency Pictures. But also, in its plot, they are making this big sweeping statement to kick it to the man and the um bollocks i've forgotten what they're called well they're pulling nine thousand a day which is quite big big how the fuck they're doing all right but it's not to do with that it's you know that they don't want how what's it called what's the company called it's a music town music Um, town town. if there's a corporate like sensibility but then there's the anarchy of the mid 90s to say no you know, da- down with a man, save the empire. Damn the man, save the empire. So I don't, I never thought of anything corporate wise when I was watching that, but that's my naivety, perhaps. I think, Patrick, that's because they don't really focus a great deal actually on the music. So we only really have one musician who we're going to spend a lot of time with, uh, who represents a fading corporate product, which is Rex Manning. But actually one of the things in the version I saw, and I know that there is a, an extended version. I think there's one conversation, which does feel even in 95, a little bit like out of date, which is when they're referring to what would Axl Rose do? I was like, surely oh, yeah. these guys wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be Axl Rose fans. Cause he, he would drive over Rex <laughs> Manning and crush him and yeah, kill him. But that would, that would be the conversation you would have if you were like eulogizing about how like, totally anti-establishment but i would suggest that guns and roses are anything but but like to your point matt like those green day fans would be no effects fans once dookie comes out because they'd be like well there's right. the band that's on the rise they haven't made it yet and and i how dare you sell records how dare you become how successful but i do get it because i was also of that same sensibility i think i used to go into god damn it hmv corporate conglomerate that it is and i would just go and pick the weirdest obscurest named bands i wouldn't even have a a clue what it was just to be different i was so different to you guys with music at that time i was all about the charts and i used to go to woolworths and only pick like from the top 10 i was nothing i don't know you've got you've got an interesting take on things for this for me because that's not how I grew up. The director of this is, what's his name? Alan, Alan Moyle. Moyle. Alan yeah. Moyle. Yeah. So five years previous to Empire Records, he makes a surprise sleeper hit, pump up the volume with none other than him from England. Not really. Christian Slater. The Johnny, uh, what's his name? The AJ, <laughs> the AJ character. I have a brother. I have a brother. <laughs> I have a brother. Our mother always loved you more than me. <laughs> the the AJ character or the actor feels like, well, we couldn't get Christian Slater, so let's just get this guy and put him in the clothes and give him the curtains, right? I will say one the one thing that uh, again that I read about the production that I will say kind of uh, that I liked about Alan Moyle as a choice was that um they had uh they shot this in Wilmington, Delaware. Hi, I'm in Delaware. <laughs> it's a Wayne's World deep cut for you there. Um, but, uh, uh, and it was, uh, cause it was a really close, like small production. Uh, they had a huge amount of, um, uh, uh, rehearsal time. They put everyone up in these houses in this one little district and they all would go to each other's house and apparently smoke an awful lot of weed. And, uh, the kids were given a lot of, um, 
free reign to create their characters. They would uh, pick their own costumes. Uh, they would help workshop the script. They would try and rewrite certain lines of dialogue. Um, the writer was there with them. Apparently it was like super collaborative. This is one of the things that made me think that um, while perhaps the origins are cynical, I do get the impression that certainly Alan Moyle and the cast were um, were really putting quite a lot of themselves into it. Apparently, Toby Maguire was cast in the film. Uh, he appears in the credits on IMDb, but he is not in the finished film. Apparently he had some sort of psychotropic drug freak out in Alan Moyle's basement and decided to go back to Hollywood. Yeah, it was in a, a Q&A. The, Ethan Embry that plays Mark gave him some acid and he just said Toby Maguire had to go home. He had some kind of, uh, existential crisis. And, uh, but then he, he said he had a good, he did a, a great job of reevaluating his life because he, en- he ended up as, uh, Spider-Man, of course, and did it had had subsequent success, and, and he was you know enjoying himself in the the Pussy Patrol, whatever it is. Yeah, the the Pussy Patrol was <laughs> he's got a it's a hard A. Oh God, he was he was uh, he was Ethan Embry's getting the cast off LSD that inspired the Pussy Patrol, apparently. <laughs> 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 um, and I guess one other thing that I did like was uh, that the uh, that I read is that the record store was obviously a set. It's not a real record shop, but I thought they did an incredible job on the layout of that. Yeah, it looks and good. also, the street outside is not a real street. That is a fake street. It's a forced perspective set. Those How are cool fake arms. <laughs> Sorry, uh, <laughs> Father Ted. <laughs> We're going all over the place with the references today, aren't we? <laughs> Just a first impression, sorry, like just on, on all that though, it, it subsequently, of its time, it was a really weird thing. I, it, it reminded me of sitcom TV to start with. Um, the delivery of the lines, the, even the breaking the fourth wall and all of that. It reminded me of Malcolm in the Middle. And I was, okay. Malcolm in the Middle came a lot, like five years later. Um, I was trying to marry up when they started, but that kind of American sitcom comedy TV, that's what he reminded me of, um, to start with, to start, like, Gally said, you know, it's kind of not that cinematic and I just wanted to go on that as well, Gally. No, I think, I think as well with the, with the way that the characters all have the a, sort of one thing and that one thing is the thing that is going to be resolved kind of fits the, the whole sandbox of a day and a life of, you don't want to give them too many things. You've only got a day to sort it out, but I like, Oh, I'm giving sandwiches away here. I thought that they handled that well, as in with the writing and the performances, some stronger than others. But again, I, I, I wonder if that's, you know, partly to do with the actor that's in the role, but also the amount of screen time that was afforded. Certainly in the 90 minute theatrical version that I watched, there were some that felt like they really had some weight to them and others that I felt like they only had a short period of time and managed to execute. I'm looking at Robert Tunney, who I actually think has the more has quite a complicated arc but manages to nail it in about three scenes so it's, it's i thought it was quite impressive it's interesting that they all ended up in episodic telly as well after what you're saying they all kind of scattered into these different shows that had you know different tones but um it did have a slight telly said on h2o uh certain actors can I think it's Neve Campbell you were referring to. You can speak in a certain melodic yeah, TV way. The inflection. And I found that in the first 20 minutes of this, that it was TV delivery and like I'm saying my lines with purpose and <laughs> emphasizing words that if you could all just pay attention. When was that bit? It was a uh, AJ says something like, 
a little bit of focus and it's just <laughs> yeah all all of that reminded me of what you said there as well there's also um structurally an amazing amount of um stick it and move on so there's not really <laughs> um we said that the plot is a little loose but also there's a um an amazing amount of like you'll go through what would be considered a quite heavy scene and then don't worry about it just cut and do something else so there's uh i think i think it's the the deb sequence no it's fuck it's when joe says that the place is being sold and it's all like supposed to be this is the lowest ebb and mark just comes speaking directly to camera to say we mustn't dwell not on rex manning day (laughs) and so well that's that's it i guess we're done with what would be considered to be the darkest point in the second day by empire that's a good thing, right? <laughs> wow, that would be fantastic. Oh, wow. You think it's going to happen now? I have to pay for what Mr. Brilliant here did. It's over, kids, okay? Mitchell is the man, Joe. Yeah, and the man calls all the shots. Damn the man. Let me explain it to you. Mitchell's the man. I'm the idiot. You're the screw-up. And we are all losers. Welcome to Music Town. No, we mustn't dwell. Oh, not today. We can't. <laughs> not on Rex Manning Day. I heard you on the wireless back in 52. Lying awake and dancing, tuning in on you. If I was young... I think the, the thing, the reason it, it gets away with it, I've got more in my conclusion. This is kind of where I'm going with it but teenage life is all over the place and you you kind of uh, the the way this thing kind of tonally jumps around was kind of okay in my book it kind of worked because it kind of puts you in the mindset of of it's almost like a bipolar thing that's happening and uh for, for that reason the adolescent kind of mindset thing i i kind of think it gets away with it but it, it is a bit it jumps around a bit, doesn't it? You say adolescent mindset, Matt. You have perfectly segued me into the opening of the movie, which normally I don't like to be thrust into the the crisis point within the first couple of minutes of a film when I have no idea <laughs> what is actually at stake. But because mm. the film is jumping off with Lucas discovering that the store is in trouble and is indeed going to be uh, converted into a music town... Um, I quite liked the youthful, naive mindset of it's everything's going to work out because the world will always right the wrongs. And I, and that is his thinking, isn't it? Well, if I just go to Atlantic City, I'm going to win. And the movie does a nice little visual cue where he just walks past, um, one of those slot machines, slots. Mm. Sorry, that's a Beavis and Butthead, do America <laughs> reference there, deep cutting all the time. Um, <laughs> There's lots of sluts in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the thing about that is, though, made me, I, I know what they're trying to do. <laughs> Pat, did you think he was like, it was a dream sequence, did you? Because no, it was just so no. stupid. It's it silly. So he's setting him up to be Mr. Lucky and he's going to win and he guesses the um, roulette number, which is fine. I get that one. But pulling the slut machine 
She is her money. She was going to win that money anyway. It does not, doesn't mean that he is a magic. Top. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's what I mean. It undercuts the idea that he's like, today is my day. And all because he's got the, the, I guess this is me again, slightly giving away sandwiches, but that energy of just thinking of a time when you weren't baked with cynicism and skepticism, that everything will just work out as you hope and think because you don't know any better in a way. I thought they captured that in that sequence. And I just love the fact that that hot girl's like, you are so sex. And it's like, <laughs> I know. With my turtleneck and leather jacket. And then all of a sudden, obviously it all comes, you know, re- reality comes crashing down. And I like Lucas's reaction, which is to just turn to Zen wisdoms because he doesn't, he mm. can't comprehend what's just happened. His, his first line afterwards my, is, uh, is great, right? The, uh, I wonder if I'll be held responsible for this. Through the three viewings that I had, I liked him more as it went on. But like at, at the beginning, I, I, I've written deplorable wanker. <laughs> I, I didn't like any of the philosophical stuff, the, the, the cryptic bullshit nonsense that really wound me up. But he, he has good intentions. That's the thing, but it, it was idiotic to gamble. Well, here's the annoying time. thing, Matt, is uh, coupled with that, cause I had a similar thing. It, it annoys me more that when, he has, when he speaks to Joe, or I'll call it a confrontation, he doesn't explain his motives. He doesn't say, and that really annoyed me. It really pissed me off that. There's a scene slightly after that where, uh, he, he's telling Joe what a great boss he is and he's saying, you're superb. And he says, say it again. And why is he taunting him in that situation? He's the one in the wrong. And I want, I wanted blood at that point. I wanted Joe <laughs> to kick the shit out of him. I like that, um, to me, that always just suggested that, um, I, I really like Rory Cochran in this film. I guess, again, this possibly can come into it at a younger age. And so him being so kind of weird and, and everything just bouncing off him and, um, his, his, he's always just kind of on a completely different tack to everyone else in the scene. And it's always quite interesting to watch, but I got the impression that that gave this bigger, um, meaning to his and Joe's relationship. There's little moments throughout mm. between him and Anthony LaPaya that I really like. And I, you you don't find out until the 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 deb funeral scene that um joe essentially rescued lucas from uh from the the, the state he'd been turned over to the state by his by his parents um so i, I that's basically why i i guess he's uh he can't help but he has and what a wonderful way to pay him back all right so what what yeah but joe Shouldn't accept it without an explanation. It's, it's easier than that. Maybe not, Patrick, but when you, a sur- surrogate father and, and son, mentor, mentory, then Lucas, by the end, he has adopted Warren as his kind of right. I'm going to do the thing that Joe did for me. Obviously, it doesn't absolve him of the responsibility, but that is kind of the, oh, come on. I am young. Look, you, someone steals money from you and they, you ask them where they are and they say it's in circulation in Atlantic City. I'll punch him in the fucking face. Yeah, you, you have you have to look at it as like Alvin and the Chipmunks with the 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 Dave character of Justly and like you little rascal. That's how it that's how it played to me. I get all that. I get all that. That's fine. He just needs to tell him what he actually did with the money. He doesn't answer the fucking question. I think it's that he's supposed to be smart, but hugely irresponsible. He, I, I think, signifies the the callousness and the smugness of youth. Yes. Yeah. And he, he, uh, like the, the older you are when you first see this film, yeah, yeah. you're going to relate to different people. I was just, it was just me and Joe. Yeah. I, was <laughs> like, I can't, Joe, I can't believe that you, he should have just ran off with that side chick from Goodfellas at one point. He should have just, 
just fucked it all up and just said these these kids are so so incredibly annoying. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave. But I think one one more thing with um uh the uh, Lucas character, I felt like maybe that surrogate father thing. Maybe he was test he's he's testing yeah. him. Yeah, you know, I when got people that. try and push you away just to see if you really love them and care about them. There's a nice payoff when the right at the end when everyone starts chipping in the cash just before Mark goes running outside to yell, damn the man, save the empire down the TV camera. Um, as they're doing it, you get the kind of the, the eventual realization from Lucas that he has to take responsibility for this to an extent. And he, he and Joe just kind of both do the exact same little, uh, chin on fist gesture just look at each other they mirror each other for like it's about three seconds i don't know i think i I, i'm with galley in that he's self-centered irresponsible youth getting away with it because he can and yeah maybe when you're a kid you quite like the anarchicness and the idea of like yeah fuck it i can just get away with this it's like that movie blank check (laughs) oh yes indeed indeed i got the distinct distinct impression that girl from goodfellas or villain from beethoven's second um is and batman, batman forever. forever she's the oh, yeah. evil side to drew barrymore's good side of harvey dent <laughs> um i got the distinct sense that she was only there for the not gays and also uh, to make sure that joe is not like a creeper with the kids i don't know because that, that felt like a a writer's thing like oh well we need to give joe mm. Because he mentions about I'm divorced and my other girlfriend uh, removed me by gunpoint. So him being this surrogate, again, I hate to keep going for Dave and Alvin and the Chipmunks, but essentially (laughs) that character. (laughs) Have um, you been watching uh, uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks? Have you been running the series? (laughs) I think (laughs) he's just for them. They're up for sale at the minute. So I think he's trying to invest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just trying to find an IP because it's all about the IP nowadays, team. We can't make a film without it. Um, but yeah, I just thought that, that Joe, I really liked Joe. I liked the fact that the film gave him just one moment when he's playing the drums to ACDC where you're reminded that this is what this guy loves. He loves the music. He loves being, reminding him of like being more rebellious. But obviously he's also dragged down by the weight of reality, which is financial ruin, corporate takeover and, and, and being, you know, essentially his life is in the store and, but he's burdening all the responsibility and letting these, letting these kids essentially not do a great deal, which is, you know, it's fine. It's like a little youth club in it well, you have to suspend your disbelief throughout mm. this film a little bit as well because there's a moment during that fake funeral where eight of them are not on the shop floor and and they should be working yeah. like who's running the fucking place <laughs> i think this just mark isn't it it's just that it, the idiot mark and he sets it up quite quickly with that with this um he, he what is it the orange m&m or something that oh who gets to play the music first right. yeah mark gets to play seams and they get that montage of them setting up and you know, it's a little bit like the dance sequence in uh Breakfast Club or something. That is, you know, it's expressive. Yeah. And yeah. did you ever do that, Dev, in uh, Music Zone? Uh, no, we didn't. We did. We, we were a very small staff. There's only four of us um ever in there, and you would basically would just take it in turns. Uh, my manager was very tolerant of my of my bullshit. So, um, he would like let me put on like Mogwai and stuff, which did, most did he bail you out of jail as well? Uh, he didn't it was later was, <laughs> yeah. but um uh 
there was a, a girl that worked there, Danielle, and she was like super obsessed with um only uh, uh three bands. Um Queen, Aha, mm-hmm. and Adam and the Ants. Oh. oh wow. And mm-hmm. while these are all, I'm sure, fine options, none of it really works for me. And the, I've got a weird thing with Queen. I don't know what it is. They really fucking jerk my chain. So, uh, so I would have the, 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 the problem that I would have to sort of tolerate that. But it was cool. We were allowed to play whatever we wanted, except for at lunch breaks when you had to play whatever had been on Jonathan Ross's show that week. Cause that oh, was going to be really? the biggest seller. Uh-huh. Yep. Jonathan oh. Ross's chat show at that time was like the biggest tastemaker in the country. Well, I wonder if, um, in, in now and like HMVs, whether or not they, just have play like you know how um stores pay to have playlists hmm. that actually just play throughout the day i don't know if it's like that now for a hmv or a i mean i couldn't even tell you a, what's what is the virgin stores even exist anymore i'm well out of touch so. apologies um there's there's hmv and then there's fop which is cool hmv that's the only physical oh yeah that's that's where it's like we're not hmv we sell nothing but vinyl and also HMV CDs, the same price. <laughs> oh, I do love Fop though. Amazing Blu-ray selection downstairs. Because that's the thing, isn't it? It's now expanded to, oh, we cater to all your pop culture needs. So if you want the latest Chuck Palahniuk book, it's just over there. Yeah. <laughs> so, Don't forget to stock yeah. up on fucking Funko Pops on the way out, you jerks. Oh, shut up. <laughs> yeah, that. you know what? That was the one thing. Watch it, watching this film <laughs> reminded me of a time before the plastic Funko Pop became the craze absolutely <laughs> winds me up no end sorry listeners if you've got any but <laughs> we've just cut our audience by 90 percent. <laughs> the bit that i can't understand is do you remember i sent you that picture devlin of the peter parker funko Pop? <laughs> it, it, it could be anything it could literally be anything but because it says fu- peter parker on the front it's literally a guy in a jeans at the top with a sweet haircut. <laughs> I was just like, this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry about that, listeners. Uh, can we go from the, the Funko Pop hate to Mark hate? His, his stuff like rarely landed for me, but Mark and the, the guar <laughs> pop brownies <laughs> stuff. I, I was thrilled when he got killed by an alien creature. It's an odd, odd writing of that character. If you're saying about that collaboration thing at the, at the beginning. I wonder how much of that came from him as well. Who, who plays him? It's he was so young he, when he's screaming yeah. into the into the shoplifter. I, I wonder yeah. if a if another actor could have done a better job of of c- conveying that kind of mad anarchic type. Because he, to me, he was too bulbous. You know, with his eyes and his his mouth, it was almost like a knockoff Jim Carrey impression. I, well, I I was I wondered and. I was kind of alluded to this before from Matt, who pointed out the very weird and very uncomfortable kissing the girl uh, attempt to kiss the girl is listening to music with her eyes closed and she's in the music and he leans over to kiss and it's very strange. And I was, that pissed, pissed me off. I think Matt, you said the same, you wanted to throttle him. And then after that, I did watch it with the th- intent of trying to think like, what's wrong with Mark? Is Mark like ADHD or is he, uh, I don't know. It... He's the most animated stoner I've ever seen. I mean, if if he's if he's supposed to be high, then why is he behaving like that? I don't really know what he's on. I don't know whether it was, you know, he he something like a mental illness or something with him, like ADHD or something. But if so, it wasn't explored well, and it was just this character, and it's just this. I don't know, annoying person throughout hmm. the whole thing. I th- I think this. Um... I'd, I'd hesitate to say if. if... 
If you ran around um, Music Zone like that, Dev, I'd I'd hesitate to say that someone would probably smack right. you in, uh, in Darlington. You were, yeah, you're not you're not, you know, you're not uh, pulling that shit off in Darlington. This is the weird thing. I found it completely it very hard to relate to that because when I was at school and even to a degree into college, you sort of kept yourself to yourself. Mm. Uh, so a lot of these American kids behaving this way distanced me from the movie i think this uh this era though this is i mean this is only 1995 so we are definitely many many years before people would have been exploring any of this kind of stuff really in 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 films so you ended up just being oh it's just wacky you know it's like uh you hear about people who are uh, diagnosed later in life with adhd and it's like oh i always just thought i was a bit of a twat <laughs> and this is probably <laughs> there's a moment where he looks down at his own name tag yes. To check what his yeah. name is or how it's spelled. Uh, you know, things like that suggested there could be something, but I, because it's not spelled out, as Patrick said, I still hated him. Oh, just, he's the youngest cast member by a stretch. He was only 16 when he was in the film. And of course, as we know, he was, uh, 16, uh, living in a house with a bunch of other actors for uh, at least a few weeks, if not a few months was on an amount of LSD. <laughs> um, so I, I, yeah, so I, I guess this was maybe just, you know, this is, it's like if you give a video camera to a bunch of kids and see what they come up with to say, like, what are you going to find funny? And you're going to end up with, at that age especially, something quite um uh immature. And probably he's going to be reaching for big, whatever he does, because he needs to know that, like, he needs to make sure that he's doing something. Otherwise, maybe he would feel awkward or uncomfortable. So... I think, yeah, he's just acting out in all directions and probably the, the actor himself who has had, uh, uh, throughout the years problems with, uh, mental health struggles and substance abuse, I believe. So yeah, possibly this is just manifesting, but in a, in a light way, which a few years later, you would probably actually do something with it. But then, then Mark also has this almost relatable thing i think for an audience at the time of a certain age is i want to start a band he's definitely someone who's trying to find himself and understand who he is and i got that the more it went on but the the opening and him going outside and kissing the mural and stuff i just fucking this is i think devlin hit the nail on the head when he said this is this is just you this is your wacky character this is your maverick this is your who you knows what you're gonna get character in this in this cast of of colorful characters and actually patrick you said about identity and mark struggling to find it i found that that was the central thread through all the characters yeah. is that they're presented one way and they're actually something else and um that leads us on to our our, our three female uh characters i'll start with um with deb robin tunney who goes through a sinead o'connor phase um i i thought she was great as i said christ in new york you know, she was, she was really, really good. And I thought that you could tell, like, this is where you kind of get into, um, possibly, um, dangerous territory. But I think her characterization, Rennie Zellweger's and Liv Tyler's in the short space that they have, it feels like it was written by a, by a woman. Do you know what I mean? This isn't ri- female. They, they feel rounded, certainly. Yeah. They feel rounded and, and their, their, their issues feel, genuine in their depiction but also in the way that they're written on the page one of my favorite scenes is one of the quieter scenes and it's when joe is speaking to deb when she's you know she's at her lowest point and it's like the moment when she realizes you know what i have a family and it's in this store 
and Joe can't. Well, I think all he says to her is, "Are you okay?" I'm just doing the quarterly income tax returns. I'm almost done. Look, Deb, um, if you need to talk about anything... Can I fix me, Joe? Okay, fix me, I'll listen. Well, I didn't mean that. I, <clears throat> I mean, should I call your mother or something? Or? Great, you know, if, if you find her, could you give me a number? Because I'd like to talk to her myself. I know you didn't mean anything. You're doing a good job, Deb. But again, he doesn't see, does he? Like, poor Joe is trying with everyone. There's the scene where Rene Zellweger freaks out and he's having to restrain mm. her. And then there's the scene where Liv freaks out. And then there's this scene. So he's, he's doing his best, but I never feel like Joe gets, uh, gets much credit for, for the people he's helping. He keeps the storm out. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, they, they, they're young, I guess. So you don't really get. Much yeah. of the, the film needs Joe though, suppose, doesn't it? So it's for it all these young mm. characters. Oh yeah, yeah um, absolutely. And that that bit with with Deb, I I wondered if I don't know, he shouldn't have walked away from her and continued to talk to her. But I think that would have gone against her character because she was quite dismissive. And again, this film is about people finding yeah. themselves, which is mm. is good. I will say I lost interest in the fake funeral bit. That didn't quite work for me. Um, yeah, and that an was a little too, uh, ostentatious and, and didn't work. Well, her in that moment where she says, shouldn't you be talking yeah. about me? And that goes completely yeah. against her character. Didn't work. Again. It's like, she's not, she doesn't want to be there, but then she's like, oh, why did you stop talking about me? She mm. does want the attention. In, yeah, but then we know she wants attention because, you know, there's, there's almost a cry for help with the lady Bick, uh, cutting of her wrist. But, you know, she, she's someone who, she puts herself in front of the line of the gun. She doesn't know there's blanks in there. She's, she's certainly, I don't know, like almost headstrong in her crisis. And do, do, is she, I, I don't know, do they look after her enough? They're the mm. other characters. Well, that, that funeral, oh, I don't know if they look after her enough. I think that she comes to recognize that they are there for her and that she could be there for them. That, that certainly translates, but just on that funeral scene, that felt like an attempt to be like on the, on the zeitgeist. It reminded me a lot of the MTV unplugged kind of performances with the candles and the purple. Right. And, do you remember those? I, I remember Nirvana did yeah, one yeah, yeah. famously. Well, that's weird because the, 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 the Kurt thing famously is that he was planning his own mm. funeral and, and that entire thing right. is, is set up with the knowledge that he was about to kill himself. But that's what I meant earlier when I said that I think the film was probably two to three years too late. Like that would have been something in 92, 93 that I think people would have recognized instantly. Whereas in 95, I don't know, pop culture moves so quickly that this felt like it was almost, it was almost too late. Yeah, but you, you say that like you've got, again, the thematic similarities in School of Rock, which come in 2003. There are still repeated themes at that time, and it was sort of through line. Le- less about the themes, more about the execution, I guess, Patrick. Because, you know, a year later, we have 
the UK, showing you how it's done properly, train spotting. That is, that is the shift, isn't it? It's like choose life. You know, this film was all about choosing your identity. A year later, train spotting drops and all of a sudden America's like behind the curve on, on what people are really interested in. Rave culture, dance. Yeah. yeah that well, this kind of stuff. also, it, it shows like the, um, the big gulf between like, you mentioned the breakfast club more than once now, I think Patrick, and that is absolutely the, uh, the key point of this, which is like the breakfast club kind of John Hughes era of like very frothy comedy. Sometimes there's some very questionable choices as well. Like there's, there's some stuff comes into the John Hughes. There's some stuff in Heather's that is questionable. Well, that's, uh, I mean, to be fair, Heather's is, is intentionally a very black comedy. So I think, uh, Heather's was, if anything, a um, a self-conscious pushback on the on the the John Hughes formula, and I think Breakfast Club being the one where every every character is is this archetype, but really inside they contain multitudes, and that we so we so this the the funeral scene is the uh, my old man gave me the pack of smokes scene. It's the bit where they sit around and and finally air their true feelings, but it's um having it be a funeral and talking about a suicide attempt in a film which largely hasn't gone down this road particularly this is quite a dark thing to discuss and quite a difficult thing to discuss and i think you're right in that robin tony does a great job of making sure that it never veers too melodramatic and comes off as cheap um otherwise i think it really would but then if you isn't there a bunch of like uh john hughes films will often just have storylines of sexual assault or abortion or stuff like this will just come in from left field mm. be discussed and then and then and then it disappears into like you say stick and move you're onto another thing in a roundabout way i just think empire records has the it's the energy it's not necessarily the tone because i don't because the tone is all over the place but there's like an energy there's a verve there's a kind of momentum in empire records and and the two characters that that i think do such a great job and there's no no wonder why they went on to bigger and uh maybe better things is uh is i think Rennie zellweger has got like not a great deal on the page i don't think she's got a one breakout scene um but actually she's great in this and so is Liv tyler and i think they work well together they, they, they really do work in tandem. I, I don't know what you guys thought outside of, you know, they're both looking very nice in this movie as well. Um, oops, creeper alert. Well, how old is Liv? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very hard to talk about, isn't it? I think 17? I'll give you the ages first just to ruin everyone's, oh, uh, uh, fun. Uh, you know, you remember the, the crazy video, uh, for, yeah, of course, Smith, where they're schoolgirls. Uh, I think they're both 16, 17 around that time. And, and the fact that her dad is involved in it. But yeah, by the time this came round, I think 17 when they shot 18 on release for only for live. And, uh, the, um, uh, Rene Zellweger was 25, 26. That's the, the mad time. thing. So, Rene Zellweger you know. is in Jerry Maguire one year after this. How fucking insane is that? We're going from like record store teen turbo slut, as they call her. To, uh, <laughs> to like sensible young mother, like she skipped a whole big section of career yeah. there. I'm not sure she's a massive quicksand fan. I didn't get that impression <laughs> from the little, the little arm bent. Uh, the sugar high stuff when she's she's shaking her hands a lot yeah. in, in a peculiar way. I I wasn't too sure about that. Um, I thought it was fine, Matt, but she does the shaking her hands thing like she's uncomfortable and she stutters after a chorus that she's already sang quite well. Oh yeah, she nailed she it. Should have been I mean, the other way around. Like, she's 
kind of dealing with this moment isn't it? she's finally got this moment that she was looking for yeah. she can't believe that it's happening and uh but that her go-to thing is shaking her hands <laughs> in a weird way which is i i no thought running they were very good in this and yeah um yeah i think it's always she definitely owns like a sexuality in this film as well and quite it comes across really confidently she's quite a mature performance mm. in that sense for something that's quite an immature thing that she's portraying um, you know, like, it's not, I can't imagine it's easy to put on an apron like that and dance with your, your ass out and stuff in, in front of people who are. This, this film was very good at, um, uh, or very suspiciously good at, um, kind of having actresses sort of strategically falling out of their costumes and, and like almost sort of the vague kind of moments of nudity that, but that, that one with the apron, I kind of got more and accepted more because it, it had a, proper purpose there's a very strange bit with Liv Tyler lifting up a top and examining her bra or her breasts and that was I didn't really I got there's another moment when she puts her hands down to her crotch I got that a little bit more getting kind of ready and excited for Rex Manning but the re- revealing herself to herself I don't know it didn't always work though it's strange it's awesome i mean it's completely that scene is completely lascivious for, for our benefit her doing the essentially a yeah. striptease to the throwing muses track is that's probably the i i understand that it is character motivated but also they know what they're doing in that scene mm. and when i was like 14 of course i was well on board i'm 37 years old now. oh you were warren on the sofa weren't you at that point <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> Yeah. Although I, I, again, I think mm. kudos to Rennie because on paper, this could be easily disposable and kind of almost laughable in characterization. You know, the, the slut who's secretly, um, you know, so, so lacking in confidence and self-worth that she just turns to the one thing that she thinks people will like her for, which is sex. Um, on paper, that could be really uncomfortable to watch and generally like she could be quite um, acidic as a character you could quite hate her i don't hate rennie i don't hate gina i totally understand her her conflict and her struggles and she has that scene where you know because like i say everyone's got that moment she breaks out and joe's trying to console her that doesn't feel it feels uh, you could argue it's a bit sitcommy but it never veers into kind of friends mm. territory of like manicness it it, do, it feels somewhat grounded just because Rennie Zellweger is a top performer better than anyone in the Friends cast. Did it, did you get a, a direct comparison to um, the the Liv Tyler Corey story Corey story of being um, the high achiever who's secretly on the speed pills which you can't help but directly <laughs> attribute to Elizabeth Berkeley's all time of freak out in Saved by the Bell when she's so yeah, excited yeah. she's so excited ah. she's so scared <laughs> i would say <laughs> there is probably a reason why Liv tyler went on to a slightly uh higher profile career than elizabeth berkeley and it's possibly because of yeah. how well they handled freaking out on speed well it's a bit weird like she was like a model at 14 i think so she's been it doesn't make it okay but she's been kind of sexualized for for a while i think and even steven tyler's involved in that aerosmith video that they're um you know that that's that plays a bit suspect now but there's a very uh, weird video on that I'll put in the playlist where Liv is on The Word with Shane Ritchie and she has to sit next to Shane Ritchie and have a chat with Danny Bear. And it's really unusual, like Shane Ritchie sort of chewing gum in a really sort of lascivious, creepy way and making 
unusual comments, but um, yeah, I think she's she's had to she's had to stomach all of that, hasn't she? Like, um, eventually going on to do bigger and I'd argue better stuff. Well, you you, know, you say that, but I mean, the, the creepiness is inherent in the Tyler family. I mean, anyone who's watched the "I Don't Want to Miss a Thing" music video of Liv stroking her father's face on the TV screen whilst he sings at her. There's all sorts of Freudian weirdness going on there. To stack up some more weirdness for Liv here, I don't know if, if you guys knew about this, but um, Burko, uh, as played by uh, a Canadian, I guess he is, musician, Coyote Shivers, um, was uh, Liv Tyler's stepdad. What? He's married to uh, Bebe Buell, <laughs> who is a infamous groupie. Sorry, Band-Aid from back in the day. Band-Aid. And, um, <laughs> and she got together with Coyote Shivers at the time. He was maybe only around 30, so he's much younger than, than her mom. But, um, uh, he's, uh, uh, Coyote Shivers is, a is, is a weirdo. Uh, he later went on to marry the goth girl from NCIS and apparently was not good to her at all and is, uh, legally not allowed to, um, uh, uh, file a lawsuit in the entire county of Los Angeles because he just keeps suing people, um, in order to fuck with them. Uh, and also one thing that, that is kind of one thing that, that I think plays well for the film is that Coyote Shivers, even though he is a musician, doesn't really have any back catalog of note. Like he is a real music guy. Clearly he did write this song, but if you look him up on like Spotify, he's an, an EP, which is essentially, it's only about four or five songs. And he didn't manage to get that out until maybe a year or two after this film had already been and gone. So I do quite like that the sugar high moment wasn't uh, a launching pad for this dude's career because the song doesn't really exist outside of of the film, which is quite cool. And weirdly, the version on the soundtrack doesn't have Rene on it. It, It's just him. I think this leads us nicely onto Rex Manning, who has a whole day dedicated to him. So we've done a couple of films like this uh, that have skewed corporate America. I'm thinking Ghost World. There was a lot of, um, there's a lot yeah. of kind of like youth culture like corporations taking over. You think about the coffee house that Scarlett has to work at. Um, mm. I really like the way they skewer this kind of Robert Palmer, Rick Springfield type. And it also reminded me of kind of forgetting sarah marshall and just thinking well maybe alder snow is just rex manning and and actually as i thought russell brand is not actually that talented or that creative a thinker he's just nicked rex manning as a as a character i thought he looked like uh, david dickinson the first time i saw it and i found it really strange that she was attracted to him but after my three viewings he's, he's actually is she attracted to him though or the thought of him and the music one. and and it's the thought of him as he when he came out and when he was relevant it's like yeah. it's like women now would say like take me backstreet boys have you seen them they're probably fat now like you know they're not the same take me backstreet Aww. boys <laughs> <laughs> take me spice girls <laughs> The Real yes, Movie Podcast please. does not um, does not uh, justify Galley's fat phobia here. I'm sure if the Backstreet Boys have put on a bit of weight, that they're still very comfortable in themselves. There was originally more of an arc with him that they cut out. I'm sure Devlin knows all, all this, but there was a bit where he returned to play on stage at the end with Coyote Shivers, and they did a, a rock and roll like a replacements light version of say no more mon amour (laughs) 
and and he kind of sang along to it. And there's a scene earlier where where Rex and Coyote Shivers have a have a chat, and he he knows he's sold out, and he he used to play instruments and he used to play on his records, but the um record company talked him out of it and he has session musicians now and his love for music has kind of all diminished so there was this big arc to him that that, that they eventually just went with a shorter mm. version and yeah right. no, fine. Fine. no no way you can add pathos to that character in the way that he's depicted in in those scenes you can't turn that mm. ship round so they made the right choice yeah sounds it i'll tell you what though i don't i just a, a bit damning of the film um I didn't laugh at all until he turned up. I was pissing myself with that old woman doing an acapella. I just absolutely <laughs> love it. But even, even when he, um, <laughs> yeah. he, he has the photo with Warren, he just turns yeah. up with a Polaroid, like a big cheesy yeah. grin. I was like, yeah, this is okay. I'm, I'm finding it funny now, but I hadn't found anything else in the film of any comedic value really the thing is like as a character it's completely over the top but he owns it so kind of completely yeah, great. and the the video that they shot literally they weren't even supposed to shoot a video they were supposed to shoot like uh, 30 <laughs> seconds of usable footage to loop and they were having such fun on the beach that they've shot a full-length music video <laughs> to the entire song now of course galley you and i have worked with maxwell caulfield who plays oh, Rex Manning. Shit. yeah yeah worked on worked with them on on emmerdale in a, in a former life so oh circa gosh. 2008, 2009. And I remember there been, I remember being on there, there being a bit of a hub about him being a bit of a heartthrob. I think it's, it's just back from his Greece two days and right. all of that. Mm. But my favorite thing Max asked me to do, because I was just a runner back then, um, <laughs> around the Yorkshire Moors in some location. I think it was like in a field somewhere. And the start of the scene was him on his own outside waiting for someone to to come and engage him in conversation. And he's like, yeah, Patrick, yeah, I, um, for this scene, what I really need is, uh, a stick. Yeah, a stick about, uh, two, three feet long. I'm going to pretend it's a gun and I'm going to shoot imaginary birds with it. <laughs> and, and so we rehearsed it. I found this, st- oh, I've better find him a stick. I went to go with a stick, gave it to him. It was, and he, he weighed it in front of me. I was like, hmm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good, good. And then he put it in his shoulder and he pretended to like shoot and he was like practicing with it. It's like, yeah, thanks, Patrick. Thank you. And he started like this at the top of the scene doing this and like pulling, shooting at birds. No, he didn't even make the fucking scene because the director went, don't do that, Maxwell. <laughs> Matt, there's one thing you, you learned very quickly at Everdell. Anything, anything like that no does not make it. It's like, get, all right. I remember doing, and this wasn't with Maxwell, I remember doing a Christmas market sequence and there was a particular um, enthusiastic extra who just kept, like, I had two positions for him. I was like, you're going to go from A to B and that is it. As soon as they call action, he completely ignored me on every single take. <laughs> he started following the actors behind him and then the director was like, get rid of him. Get rid of him. Yeah, he literally said, get rid of him. So then I, I moved in somewhere and didn't tell him that he was out of frame the whole time. So he was still doing his thing where he was just following what he thought was the camera and the frame and he was out of shot. Bless him. So he actually got less money because I, he wasn't on screen. We just paid him for the, for the day. But, um, yeah, no, I know, uh, I don't have any stories like that with Maxwell. He, uh, 
I was only with him for a short time. But one of the suspects who blew up the wall pack, definitely. Um, <laughs> spoilers. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think he's great in this. I really do. And how I've the seen him. I've ever seen him in, to be honest, yeah. like from a performance in his character. I think, I think he's great. And- Interesting, weird moment where you were saying about, um, uh, uh, like the presentation of him. Matt, uh, uh, is that they were going to redeem him. He was going to have his moment with Burko and he's going to talk about how he's a real musician and he's just sold out. The, um, the last scene when he leaves or the last line when he leaves is different in the theatrical than in the, uh, remix version. In the theatrical version, when he leaves after he gets kicked out of the shop after having had sex with Gina and punched AJ in the face, uh, he's like, it's a stupid joke line. He says, why did you all just fade away? And, uh, I'm pretty sure I, I, that's the one I've seen most recently, but I'm more familiar with the remix version, but I'm pretty sure when he leaves, they tell him like that he's like a washed up, uh, nothing. Right. And, and when he walks out, he says, maybe you're right. And then leaves, which I think plays a lot better. Sorry, Jeff. The thing that bothered me about his exit was he seemed, Joe seems to chuck him out after and once he's punched AJ rather than chuck him out after he's realized, or even like break into the room, knowing what's going on, like get off my staff, a young girl, you know, it's not, I, I, I kind of wish the connotation hadn't been that he was exited after he'd gotten a fight with AJ and punched him. Take your purse and get the hell out of my store. Where's Jane? She quit, pal. What? And I was lying about your hair, it looks stupid. And we all hate your new album. Not to mention the ones before that. You're just a washed-up imposter, man. Why don't you all just fade away? Okay. How could you, man? With Rex Manning? I hate you. Gina, you better go home. Am I fired? Have I fired anyone today? No. Why would I start with you? No, I totally agree, Patrick. And actually, it, it feeds into a greater wish that I had. I've been quite positive uh, so far. I feel like I've been trying to defend my friend, Devlin. Um, but I will say that the the resolution to the whole movie and the one that, you know, the, the first crisis, which is the money, I didn't buy it and I understand the 80s trope of let's have a musical number. It's Wayne's World 2. Mm-hmm. If you book them, they will come. I get all that, but it never felt really like that was the right way for them to resolve the money crisis in order to buy the mm. shop. I would have preferred them to extort Rex and that's how they got the money. Okay. Like maybe he was just about to have sex with Gina and they get a snapshot and they're like, pay us all the money. Otherwise we are going to, we're going to mm. show this to all your old fans who are going to hate you for it. They've got, they've got the Polaroid camera that could have caught him in the act. I thought that's where the film was going to go. Cause I was like, well, they still need to find the money. Did they ignore the money for a long time though? You know, from a, from a sense of how do we resolve this? Yeah. It's not important. Everyone's internal conflicts are important until the money becomes right. What's the existential problem is the store is going to go and we're going to lose our, our kind of pseudo family, but I, I don't know what you felt, Devlin. You know, you like you, ha- you have got blinkers for this clearly, but just if you were to try and remove yourself one step, it's the breaking kind of late. It's it's an eighties trope of you know we're going to save the rec center, we're going to save the thing, we're going to the, the the kids are going to get together, and um, it's like a, did you ever see that Always Sunny in Philadelphia um episode where they have the 
like they do an AE style, let's save the ski scent, like the ski lodge thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's loads of them, isn't it's, there? They, it's they, this. You're right. So they're, they're not subverting the trope. They're hitting the trope. They have basically landed upon the, let's make this a big celebratory, you know, having a, a, a an extortion plot would feel a bit grubby in a film, which is largely just taken up with being despite occasional forays into edgy 90s angstiness we should also mention that the appearance of a fucking gun in this film is extremely out of nowhere and seems to me to be the most if possibly the only very 90s thing about it this whole uh you know post tarantino the indie films have to be a bit edgy so somebody has to bring a gun well i didn't feel any tension either i didn't believe that that gun was ever going to go off uh, so, and, and he reminded me of the Shermanator. <laughs> uh, and, and also I didn't like this idea that kids are going into shops with guns, demand, demanding jobs. And then he didn't demand them. a job though, it's did not he? the best message to, they yeah, kind of yeah, figured it out. Figured and then out, he, like... he kind of caved in and said, that's all I want. I just, I just want a job. And then he eventually yeah. got it. It was, it was it, all, all of that felt for all the uh, compliments I've given for the writing for individual scenes. The consequence wasn't good enough. No, that, that, it, it, to me, the whole film in the last 20, 25 minutes of the theatrical version was a mess. And they included the Warren gun stuff and the, as you say, Devlin, the eighties celebratory triumph moment. Um, even, even like Mitch, who's the big bad who wants to sell. He's not had enough time in order for that and to sell be it like to him cheap the moment as well. Yeah. He said it to him cheap. Yeah. Like he should, what, what should have happened to him is he should have been tied up to a lamppost and his trousers pulled down. And then I would have been like, aha, come up and <laughs> but instead he's just like, Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, this feels really trite. I've written a super mega happy ending. Like everything just managed to come together in, in a, in, in an implausible way so that everyone but it, was but it and does yeah. any yeah. good work done for, for Deborah, especially for me. And I think, I feel like it was. I feel like she um deserved more as a character. Like you said, Gally, she she does all, all these all these things. It, it all gets sidelined. You see her dancing on the roof at the end, or happy, and I don't believe that's her. Uh, I get the kind of Lucas, uh, excuse me, the AJ and Corey thing, and them having a re- resolution when it looks Lucas is as perfect, almost perfect, and we we know he's talking about AJ and Corey. I. <laughs> while ignoring all the other underlying things that so- I, I look at the deb character and to my in the film that i've watched she would be the person at the side whilst everyone's dancing kind of almost like ugh, try hards yeah just having a cigarette and that's yeah. her way of being like i accept it but i'm not going to join in instead she's dancing around like Renny Zellweg. Or where she was for, not forced, but, um, you know, encouraged to join in in a way, like dragged onto the dance floor, mm. that kind of way, right? right. And yeah, when something. she's dancing with AJ and he gets the top off, he gets his top off and I don't buy any yeah. of that shit. That's too soon after the, after the, uh, yeah. rejection from Liv Tyler. Deb wouldn't do that. That all happens too quickly, I think. Yeah. And I don't think Deb would do it either. You're right. I don't think AJ would do that actually. No, we've not really talked about AJ, but I, I, when I saw him and his character and I looked at his arc, Devlin, I, I can't lie, outside of the hair, the clothes are about right. The artist, the frustrated artist who cannot express himself in words, but can in drawings. Is this, is this your, is this you? Are you is he your avatar <laughs> in the music zone? Uh, 
the um the the AJ thing weirdly is that uh as a well as done. A, <laughs> you, should run, you should run for Parliament, mate. Lovely way of sidestepping well, that question. I, I I I have answered the question. I I am <laughs> <laughs> Um no uh uh AJ was a was a character that never really kind of stuck around in my head too much. He was kind of the slightly blandly handsome Jeff Buckley looking romantic centerpiece with not much more go into it. And it's it's only later that I sort of I quite like some of the little stuff. I love everything to do with gluing down the quarters. I don't know why that entertains me as much as it does, but it does. And uh mainly his response to Warren asking him who glued all these quarters down, which is, and I don't feel I need to explain my art to you, Warren. That's one of my favorite lines in the whole film. Um, it is strange that they, um, uh, that they do have the AJ Corey romance be, you know, the last piece of the puzzle. Um, but I, I get it. Like, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're likable protagonists and but no uh uh i i was to be one thing I, I wasn't old enough to uh to feel like an aj i was uh the wish fulfillment for me was was already still working in the, in the store that was the that was the wish fulfillment and i did quite like that they showed that the characters had like a bit of an age range they weren't um it's not a high school movie which is interesting it's a more of a cusp of adulthood movie i, I aj says they raised my rent so he's got to be over 18 uh, Lucas, I get the impression is maybe around 20. Deb seems like, I, probably I, th- I would say it's Corey and Mark are the young kids and everyone else seems to be young adults in, in hourly rate jobs. This film, so much happens in a day. It's ridiculous, but he starts the film. He's doing a little sketch with by a pencil. And then at some point when, uh, Corey goes to him to apologize because he's, uh, express his love to her. He's finished a complete painting of that sketch. He's gone through the full cycle of, <laughs> in, in how many, while trying to fix the neon signs on the roof. <laughs> oh, well, Patrick, you've never watched Portrait Artist the Year. They've only got about three and a half hours from, from sketch <laughs> to paint. So I think it's, it's, it can be done. But yeah, you're right. It's, um, he, he is the one and, and we've, we talked about him the, the least because he's, he's probably the least interesting, but he's, he's, Again, the juggling of all those stories. I didn't mind that, that it's Liv and, uh, AJ at the end. Um, oh, and, oh, do you want your superfluous IMDb trivia? I've just, just, just got it now. Mm. AJ was also the, the name of the character she was in love with in Armageddon. <laughs> Beaten to death uh, with, his own, with his own shoes. Yes. And I don't know if there's an AJ in Lord of the Rings, but it probably is. <laughs> Can we talk about the soundtrack? Um, it, how, how did you, did you enjoy the soundtrack? Did you like the songs and the artists? I, lo- I love Mon Amour. That is the best, uh, music video spoof, um, since David Brent's, uh, if you don't know me by now, like confession time, I really like Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits. Uh, I, it's well really deployed like in the film, I thought. Uh, and I think the standout is, it it is. It's done really well, and I still think the standout, although you do hear it three times, is the Gin Blossoms. Um, Till I hear it from you, I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's some there's some again like weird choices. There's some Peg Boy on it, and uh, which is great. Uh, which you know you never really expect to hear. There's some stuff about the Pixies. Uh, you said that no one really talks about music, but there is a moment at the end. I think it's post credits yes, or mid credits. Yeah. 
where, you know, they're talking about the misfits and the pixies and baselines. And, uh, by the way, the misfits are better than primers. Oh, yeah. So the pixies. Agreed. Um, oh God. Uh, yeah. Christ. And, and also, but did you agree with their assessment of Henry Rollins? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they said he's a yeah. pussy or something? They called it the same year he got thrown out of a window by Al Pacino. They knew. Another another deep cut there. I'm just, I'm full of them. That was heat, by the way, just in case I was wondering what I was on about. <laughs> my um, my Henry yeah. Rollins thing is uh, our friend Aiden is a, is a big Rollins band fan. And I remember talking to Aiden a lot about um, Henry Rollins used to present a TV show on Channel 4, which was like Robot Wars meets Junkyard Wars. Why haven't he, I seen this? Oh, wait. <laughs> and it maybe ran for like a year at most. And I'm, I'm now that none of you are reacting to this at all. I think I may have dreamed it. Matt, can you tell us what, uh, Roger Ebert thought of Empire Records? Ebert said, uh, of Empire Records in his one and a half star review, every conceivable thing happens to every conceivable character. And he's kind of right. Um, I, I don't know if it was the, the nature of the film. And, and the the intensity of it and like the over the top performances, but it did feel like everything had just been wrung dry out of it. And I think that's kind of what he was referring to. There's not a lot of restraint, a lot of excess. Uh, him and Siskel talked about car wash, which was obviously a reference and clerks. Um, and they said Lucas was better in dazed and confused, which is debatable, but I, I think I agree. If Roger Ebert had given it five stars or whatever, <laughs> I'm not. Convinced he's the target audience for the movie. So I would expect nothing more than a one and a half star. Like if you want your youth picture to hit your demographic, if Roger Ebert's like, gotta tell you, get your kids and watch this. Probably not on the pulse of the kids, I would suggest. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm reaching. Anyway, we will, uh, we'll, we will do our, um, our final thoughts and recommendations. Devlin, we'll start with you. Uh, I think we all probably can guess where you're going to land on this one. But why don't you why don't you tell us anyway? Uh, okay, I'll try and keep it brief. Um, that for every moment of uh, contrived soapy dramedy uh, that the film has, there's this kind of um, a wish fulfillment fantasy version of the lived experience of being young and goofy and working in hourly rate jobs with your friends, and that really shines through. It's like an idealized version of the sort of slacker post childhood very very late adolescence that you would want to have um uh it was a an immediate comfort watch i used to watch it all the time kind of on a rotation with dazed and confused uh they have a similar uh hangout vibe to them the uh the conflicts are all kind of safely low stakes teen soap variety so nothing's ever going to intrude too much um you can just sort of settle into it i like the I like the looseness of it, that, but it still rattles along at such a fair clip. They they left a lot of space for strangeness in the margins, which I feel helps to stop it from being too stodgy and corporate mandated. Um, and I like just how ridiculously old fashioned the corporate baddie comeuppance is, the, the finale of the whole thing. Um, I always stick with the fan edit because I like hanging out with the film. Uh, and it, it rides a, a line between this kind of sincerity and this gen exploitation. Um, it probably requires a specific time, place and headspace to determine whether it grows on you. I would imagine if I'd have seen it a few years later, I'd find it annoying and probably dismiss it. I'm very intrigued to see what you guys come up with as a conclusion because you've now met it in adulthood. 
which is uh, which is interesting. So um, I will turn to you, Galley, as a first time adult viewer of uh, Empire Records. Uh, oh, I'll also say, yeah, I recommend it with the with the caveat that you may find it deeply irritating, and uh, I totally understand why somebody might find it deeply irritating. I personally don't. I find it quite sweet and really, really easy watch. But uh, yeah, what did you make of it? Uh, well, I'll keep my I'll keep my thoughts brief. I recognised the shaggy dog nature of Empire Records and the sandbox with which the story and the characters are set. But I won't lie, I found myself grinning and smiling and rooting for this group of outcasts. And I think it's because they're not mean-spirited or condescending. You know, we talked about the difference between this group of music store workers versus high fidelity. does not mean that high fidelity is not great, but they are gatekeeper elitist types. And these guys aren't, they don't really talk about the musicians as such, but they do talk in in kind of... uh, strong terms about what music means to them. Certainly in the theatrical version, I kind of got that. I might be projecting a little bit, but they're also not like wallowing in their own self-pity, which I also quite liked. Um, and I just enjoyed their optimism and the naivety. It reminded me of a time when I always thought that everything will be okay. And I wasn't polluted with cynicism and skepticism because Twitter. So um, yeah, I captured an energy, felt good. It felt, you know, the the line for me is it felt good for the soul. So I'm going to mild recommend Empire Records because it's wonderfully unimportant as a hangout movie. And it kind of worked for me in 90 minutes. I was just like, you know what? All the problems in the last 30 minutes, the first hour kind of carried me through. So, um, yeah, I think it might work for you too. But the caveat very much is, Devlin, <clears throat> that this could very well be the worst film you've ever seen for some people. Uh, I think, you know, genuinely it's one of those, like Matt and Patrick said, the first five minutes, they're they're immediately like, I think I'd like to kill Lucas. And that could happen to you too. What about you, Patrick? Firstly, I will say I watched it twice and I hoped this would happen to me and it did the first time I think I watched it too cynically, too, um, too grown up. And I knew, I've done this a few times with you, like the second watch I was like, right, I just want to switch off and watch it and kind of enjoy it for what it is and try and heart back to uh, teen years or whatever, that time and place. And I enjoyed it a lot more the second time. Um, I, I found it agreed with me a lot more and I got more into the characters. Um, that that said, I, I think there's, again, we said this on another film recently, I think there's a lost opportunity with some of the narrative. I think um, Deborah was uh, wronged in it in a way. I, I wish it spent more time on that and, and figured out who she was. Because I was quite—I I, I really liked the character. She did a great job, Galley, like like you said. Um, didn't all work for me. The the funeral thing—I lost interest. The, the finale, I just like uh, you know, like a superhero film now that it descends into some madness of smashing each other in high CGI. That's what it felt to me. It was just. I don't know, just went somewhere that I, did, I didn't want it to and felt a little bit unfulfilled. But I do feel the film's got good it's good intentions. It's not mean-spirited or anything. Rex Manning made me laugh. I, I wish um, there was more comedy in it because I didn't really find anything else funny, which is quite damning. But it, it, as a polite way I can say this, and I mean this in the best intentions, the film's okay. It's fine <laughs> without being brilliant or shit. 
Um, whether that's standing with faint praise or it's nothing worse than saying something's fine, but I, I genuinely mean it because I didn't dislike it and it was quite enjoyable and it rattled along. Um, I almost wish I knew more about like music of the time and all of that that you guys do to get that element to it, but I, I don't, unfortunately. Um, and I think you're going to get past the first 10 minutes and just realize that it is a film. It's a film set in a film world in a sitcom-y kind of way and just enjoy it for what it is. Um, yeah, that was for me. Then Matt, how about you? I think it's a film that perhaps should have been a part of my adolescence, but for whatever reason wasn't. Um, I think I saw it too late and that was the problem for me. Like, um, I didn't see it until last year. And uh, so that's a warning to our uh, slightly older listeners. Um, you might find it difficult to get into it, uh, but if it's a revisit to it uh, and it's a film that you enjoyed during your adolescence, I, I would recommend it on, on that basis, on that basis as a nostalgic review. Um, may, maybe I'm a grumpy old man now. Maybe I've become the man. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a bit, of a, uh, a bridge too far. Uh, the theatrical cut was dead on an hour and a half, but it took me a couple of sittings to get through. Um, but I'd seen it fairly recently, so I, it was already fresh in my mind. So I think that's the reason. Uh, I like the screenplay or aspects of it. I think it fizzes along and it's very quotable. Like when we write our intro and outro quotes, I found this one very easy. There's lots of, lots of great lines to, to kind of regurgitate. Um, I think it's cringy at times. My cringeometer was, was broken at, at times. Uh, and it would be a film. Uh, I'd agree with Devlin. I'd, I'd like to watch this on my own. Um, I, I've written to cringe in peace, but I think that's kind of harsh, <laughs> but, um, I, I don't want to watch it with a group of people necessarily. I think it's a, it's something you can, you can watch on your own. The angst level is incredibly high. Uh, when they're having a great time, they're having a really great time. They're dancing without a care in the world. And then the next scene, they're glum and solemn and melancholy or just screaming with rage. And I, and I think that's a fair representation of what it's like to be a teenager. Although I don't remember spontaneously breaking into dance. Uh, there were a few violent outbursts, nothing as bad as Devlin. I didn't get locked up for, but, um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll reserve that for my, um, punch drunk love podcast. So there's a teaser, teaser there, but, um, yeah, I, I do think the remix cut was an improvement. Uh, it lost a few good lines of dialogue, but it was more of a slow burn, more of a hangout. And once I saw the film a third time in that extended version, I found it more charming. And, uh, I do enjoy the super mega happy ending with, with sugar high and, uh, the record store changing hands. And, uh, yeah, I can see it really working for some people, but I found some of it cloying and I couldn't really in, invest totally, but I was hit by that happy ending and the good feeling of it all. I'm not a monster, Tim. Uh, I'll, uh, end it there. Yeah. Uh, so where can our listeners find Empire Records, Tim? On DVD via eBay for two pounds. <laughs> Yes, you can get the special, get the, get the remix fan edition. Um, there is something called Pluto TV. I don't know what this is. I don't know where it's available, but if you go on Pluto TV, you can watch this film for free for some reason in, in full. And you can also watch Baywatch on that as well. So we move on to Patrice. It is your choice. We're all very excited to, to really struggle to find 
the film that you're about to tell us. So what are we going to watch next as part of our throwback series, Patrick? I'm so excited. Um, you guys have been picking films I haven't seen recently, so I thought I'm going to have a look at my own back on you, and hopefully none of you have seen it. Uh, going to 1967, and we're going to watch Thoroughly Modern Millie. Yeah, oh, fuck me. <laughs> what is it? What does this feel like? The spiritual sequel to Seven Brides and Seven Brothers. It, it has some heavyweights involved in it, and I'm looking forward to revisiting it because it's been many a year for me. With that in mind, no, thank you very much, Patrick. I will dig that out and see if I can get a hold of it. Uh, we've also got our Alien series that's currently running, um, and also Devlin. Always an opportunity to to kind of hawk our our merch. Uh, anything going on down at T Mill? Down at devlindoesdrawing.tmill.com, link in show notes, and go to the website <laughs> rewindmoviecast.com slash shop. Uh, there's a whole bunch of fun stuff. Matt has been very hard at work uh, mm. uh, putting uh, more of his director's series stickers in and also merchandise related to his phenomenal short film, which is now available on YouTube, is it not, Matt? Thank you very much. Yes, it is. It's called The Self-Seers. If you search it on Google, you can find it or you can go to scariestartists.com. Please show your support. And that goes for if you enjoy this episode. So please follow, like, subscribe, pen us a little review. It all helps spread the gospel, bring more listeners to the show, more listener requests, more films for the schedule, more time for us to actually get to it. Probably two or three years time now. That's, that's the, that's the lead in time for any request. Ooh, we had a, uh, we had a request from a guy called, um, a guy called Tom who, uh, emailed to say that he would like us to have a look at Event Horizon. Isn't that interesting? Oh, Sam Neill. Yes, three requests so far and we've done neither of them. Well, or any of them, Patrick, <laughs> if I can correct you. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> neither of them. Any Ooh. of them. <laughs> oh. correcting me. What the fuck is going on? Oh, Rexy, you're so sexy. Okay, so I think that us, that's us for today. We will say our goodbyes. The music is the glue of the world, Mark. It's what holds us all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. It's Gally in Glasgow. Stay safe, everyone. What's with today? Today. It's Devlin in London. I do not regret the things I have done, but those I did not do. It's Patrick in London. In the immortal words of the doors, the time to hesitate is through. It's Matt in South Korea. Thank you very much for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.
preuve sans toi. Oh, je souffre. Oh, Qu'est-ce que je veux Que baisser oh, Ta bouche délicieuse. Ouh, Oh, bébé. Je veux te pousser J'arrive 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 Oh, 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 o